Hello, you're listening to Renaissance Man, a podcast featuring my father, Philip Brunel, as he talks about the world of music. What's this is it's June. So talk to me about the month of June in a year of our Lord 2016. What has transpired in this month? What will transpire in this month? You ha- and I note that you have to pull out the what brand of, of address book or co- calendar book do you use? Well, of course, week at a glance. Week at a glance. You've been using week at a glance calendars since I can remember. Yes. So what what's the month of June? What's the month of June look like? The month began, I was in Korea conducting at that point the Anyang Civic Chorale, one of Korea's top professional choirs, Mm -hmm. in a program of all music from Canada, USA, and Mexico. Nice. And then I came back. Sounds like a United Nations event. Yes, and then I did was an American Choral Directors meeting to talk about next March when the National Convention is here in Minneapolis and my role in all of that. Um, Then the following Monday was the uh, special program up at United Theological Seminary that I did and it was a fundraiser for uh, them uh, toward an arts program and then following that there were just a lot of meetings here uh, that went on and uh, <laughs> I mean, many, many meetings. And then it became. You like your meetings, though. If they're short. <laughs> and then rehearsals that have been going on, getting ready to do a Dominic Argento song cycle in Sweden called the Andre uh, uh-huh. Expedition, which I've been rehearsing with Vern Sutton. It's a beautiful but very poignant piece. And so we're doing it over there. They have a big festival honoring this guy. Huh. And so we're doing this in a performance in this town of Grenna for the uh, 100th birthday, had he lived, of hmm. Andre. Awesome. The, and this is pretty much a typical month in the life of, of yes, young Philip Brunel. This would be true. And then... Um, after that, we are, uh, had, uh, again, many more meetings. We had our book club, my monthly book club that I'm in. What book are you reading? Uh, we just finished a book by a young Hmong writer. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the, the name of it right now, but it was beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful story about her father coming from uh, the Laos uh, region over to settle in St. Paul. Mm-hmm. And then... Wait, hold on. Wait, when do you have time to read books? On the plane. On the plane. Okay. Yeah. Or right. late at night at home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And I've been practicing getting how many, ready for this Argento, and there how, we are. How many books a year do you read on average? Oh, I would say, you know, it depends on the month, but I'd say every month I read two or three. Two or three books? Wow. Okay.
why do choirs matter? I mean, why should why should we care about choral singing? Because everybody in the world can sing. They may sing at different levels, but the wonderful thing is we all have a voice. Some people have it developed more than others, but it's one of the great things about music. It's the one instrument. You don't have to pay any money and buy the instrument. You already own the instrument. It's inside of you. And expressing yourself through singing is, to me, just one of the really great ways that people communicate in this world. So let's let's. I want to start by talking about your background and uh, and sort of becoming the becoming of a choral director. So, when did you first conduct choirs? I first conducted choirs in high school uh, when I was the organist at Park Avenue Covenant Church. But in addition to being the organist, there were times that. Uh, I was asked to also conduct the choir for Sunday morning anthems, mm-hmm. and that was really the first part of my life doing it. It continued uh, when I got to, still in high school, and was at, uh, uh, went to Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, and again, um, there I became the organist and choir director. I got to the University of Minnesota, and uh, was immediately accompanist for the opera program, the opera workshop. And in my second year there, uh, they asked me to become the conductor and they said, you ought to be the graduate assistant. And I said, but I'm a sophomore. And they said, no problem. So I then started conducting operas as well as continuing, of course, the church choral work. And, and you were also the the Bob Mansky thing. How, where did that fit into all this? Well, Bob Mansky Corollaires was the name of the group, and I was the accompanist for two years. I did that from 1962 to 64. So that would have been in my um, in those early years at uh, the university as well. Okay, and I did that. I was the accompanist, but then there were rehearsals that Bob wasn't at, and so I would then conduct. Okay. So what? Well, what was appealing about it then? To like, what was the initial attraction to conducting a choir for you? I think the attractions included that you had an idea, looking at the music, uh, how you would like it to sound but obviously you needed to have a group sing so that you could try out mm-hmm. those sounds that you were looking, those interpretations, those um, phrasings that you thought applied. And so it really, I was attracted by all of that just because I've always loved choral music. Right. But you you yourself are not a, a choir member. Like you don't, you don't sing in a choir. No, I did in high school, right. but I don't sing now. Right, but there's but there's an interesting uh, compare contrast in terms of what you get out of a choir as the choir director and what the choir members, the singers, get out of it. There's a mutual benefit. Absolutely, I mean there are a number of choral conductors who are not singers, and then there's another whole number that are singers. Yeah, what? Um, who was your who taught? Who was your first? 
teacher? Who first taught you to be a choir director? You, I would say I learned a lot of it from observing people. That's mm-hmm. no no question about that. Certainly Harry Opel mm-hmm. at uh, Minnehaha Academy in high school would have been a, a strong influence in that way. Right. And then definitely when I joined the Minnesota Orchestra when I was 19 and observed these every week, a different conductor coming in and just seeing how they rehearsed how they got work done with uh, with an orchestra, and then those same kinds of ideas filtered into how I worked with a choir or mm-hmm. with an orchestra, which I did, of course, when I was conducting the operas at the university. Mm-hmm. So just to kind of set a context around um, your CV, if you will, so you've you conducted choirs at the University of Minnesota, you did, I'm assuming, with the Minnesota Orchestra, you were Minnesota Opera, and, and, and obviously at Plymouth Church for a long period of time. Where else have you been a choir director, a, a choral director? Well, I've conducted a number of either co- um, concerts with guest choirs around the United States. I've done numerous workshops. I've conducted operas in San Francisco and Kansas City and Chicago and England and Sweden Mm -hmm. and Germany. So, you know, I've just done a lot of conducting of different kinds of repertoire in a lot of different places. What's the what's the biggest choir you've you've ever conducted? Largest number of voices? Well, this would be just being funny, and that would have been the opening of the Mall of America. (laughs) <laughs> when they called me and said, we'd like to get in the Guinness record book, uh, and it was during Christmas time, and what do you think we could do? And I said, well, I'll bet there is not anything in the Guinness record book about playing um, those little small bells, uh, the little very small ones that are like two little bells on a wire. Mm-hmm. And I said, so why don't we gather... Uh, as many people as you want and we'll sing silver bells Mm -hmm. and then every time that little theme comes we can ring the bells and I said how many people do you expect and they said well we thought Mm 50,000 and I said oh fine and it turned out 75,000 showed up but we did silver bells and I was perched on a cherry picker Mm -hmm. raised way up high and we did that this would not be what you would call uh, a a, um, a magnificent performance when you got right. all these people around right. there, but but it's definitely the most people. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so in, in preparing for this episode, I've I, I talked to a number of people uh, about the conductors and singers and and choral directors about about this, and so this question comes from Dominic Argeno, right? So his question is, why do you prefer conducting a chorus over other musical groups? I would say that I love the idea of conducting a chorus because it has the element of words. And Mm -hmm. that's not something you will get with an orchestra. I love conducting orchestra, but there's something very special that I find about trying to have a text interpreted and sung that is just different when there are no words involved.
so I've got a group of questions that are based uh, on the the premise that I know nothing about choirs and I know nothing about choral direction. So I kind of want to get a sense of the job description, kind of the how-to, if you will, okay. of, of what is a choral director, what does it take? So um, give me a job description. If you, if you were going to you know, write a job description for a choir director, what would it be? <laughs> a job description for a choir director? Well, first of all, it would depend what kind of choir you were talking about because you're going to have to write something different if you're talking about working with children or if you're talking about working uh, with a male chorus or a mixed choir. There are certain things, of course, that are common to all of them. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say among them, uh, you would want to know that you have a steady, good pulse that when you are conducting, uh, people can follow you because your rhythm will be solid. And of course, tempos change, but they have to know that they will be able to follow your beat. Your beat is clear, your beat is steady, um, and that you have an idea of how do you want to interpret the music. So a singer needs to know that they can rely on this conductor giving them certain uh, gestures mm -hmm. that will draw out from them uh, the kind of music that the conductor is looking for. Yeah. Um, again, coming from an uninitiated, you know, uh, perspective. I mean, uh, other than flapping your arms around, like, what does a choir director do? I mean, especially if you don't see them at the piano. Yes. Well, first of all, what you probably don't see, you only see the concert and right. where the work is done is in the rehearsal. Mm -hmm. yeah. The rehearsal is where they will give the singers the ideas, where they will help to make a blend of the voices, where they will help the singers to have an idea of how they should interpret this music, what the piece is about, what the composer was trying to say mm -hmm. in the music. So all of that happens in the rehearsal. What the uninitiated person sees in the concert, the flapping of their hands, right. is indeed the the final product. But that just totally depends on what happens in what happened in the rehearsals. Mm -hmm. Is there a difference between um, conducting a, a chorus only versus an instrumental orchestra or or operas or dance? Yes. Um, I'm glad, I'm glad that we that we solved that question. Right. You definitely, because conducting an orchestra has a, a different kind of gesture than conducting a chorus. A chorus is uh, oftentimes a gesture that sort of draws a sound out of your body, hmm. whereas a orchestra is looking for a certain precision that all of these people, 50 or 100 of them, mm -hmm. know that they can start exactly at the right time because that beat is crisp and it's clear and they know that they can follow. Right, okay. Does it, well, does a choir really need a conductor? Well, of course they need a conductor. <laughs> I mean, you can, well, and it's a matter of size. If you were, 
four or eight singers, you could be in a semicircle mm-hmm. and look at each other and just sing. Right. You would be fine. Yeah. There are many choral groups that are of that type. Right. And I still think that even if they're that size, they don't need a conductor, but they do need someone sitting out front listening to them to see, you know, because they can't tell. Eight singers singing together aren't going to know if their balance is good. Yeah. Uh, they're not going to know, you know, if the, if the, the intonation is exactly mm. correct. Uh, but then you start to get to some unknown size. If mm-hmm. it's 16 or if it's 32, or if it's 50, but there's gonna be some point at which somebody up front has to say, okay, let's start together, breath, go. Right. Somebody has to give you that. And I have done it with the ensemble singers, mm-hmm. and that's 32 singers. I have done things where I've started a piece, and in the middle just walked off stage, mm-hmm. and let them just do it. Yes, and then there's a certain kind of cohesive sense of them working together. But there, but again, there needs to be somebody that kind of begins it and ends it for sure. So, given what's the best thing you can do uh, for for a choir as a conductor, as a choral director? The best thing I can give them is a sense of what the piece means, what it's like, how to achieve that vocally, and how to offer to the audience a beautiful sense of um, love for the music and love for what you're trying to say through singing. So in in, in contrast, what's the number one mistake that uh, an inexperienced choral director would make? What do you see? I mean, you, you've seen plenty of young conductors coming up. What's the number one mistake that they make, and, and why do you think they're making it? Well, the number one mistake is that people can't follow them. And so the choir doesn't sing as a group mm-hmm. because they don't know quite what the person in front is doing mm. in terms of conducting. And that could be that they're not clear with their beat Mm -hmm. or it could be that they're not steady in their rhythm. Mm. That's another important issue. Uh, Things like that that I think uh, become obvious right away when you're watching a group. And then you can get into subtle things that, you know, maybe their interpretation of the piece Mm -hmm. uh, is too bland. Maybe they're not really giving us what the composer was trying to say. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of things. But at the at the heart of it, it's going to be the clarity and it's going to be the rhythm. Okay. Thinking a little bit about, like, again, the how-to, like how, the, and, and the job description. So this is another question from Dominic. Um, he's saying, in choral conducting, are you conducting the words or the notes? <laughs> in performance the notes have to already be there. You have to be conducting the words. Mm-hmm. You have to be giving people that sense of how to interpret what you already know note-wise. You, yeah. you're, not, you're not giving them this note is lower, this note's higher. You're giving them the sense of the phrasing and what you're trying to say through the music. And that, so in performance. Yes. Right. But in rehearsal, you might spend it's time... Both. 
it's both. In rehearsal, I might have to stop and say, okay, now let's work out this rhythm here. And it's really a matter of just conducting a rhythm to get it. And then once that gets going, and then, you know, knowing... So, so in a rehearsal, you could very easily just say, we're not going to do words. We're just going to... Like Robert Shaw, in his rehearsals, would never at the beginning do words. If a piece was in four, four time, he would have everybody just sing it on one and two and three and four and mm. and just do everything they would sing the notes mm-hmm. but if it was one and two and three and four and one and two and three or whatever it yeah. was he would do something like that and then when the rhythm because we all know that if you don't have rhythm you have nothing mm-hmm. so it's great to have notes and it's really nice to have words but first of all you have to have rhythm what about diction well, diction comes along later. Once you've added the words, then the question is, can you understand what you're, what someone is saying? And how, if you can't, how can you help them improve that? There are times when you cannot understand the text, which is not the fault of the singers. It is the fault either that the notes are, for instance, for a soprano, so high that up above the uh, treble clef staff... Uh, you know, it's just acoustically impossible to understand what those are unless you're Minnie Mouse and mm-hmm. then you get something. But other than that, you th- there's a point at which you can't. But basically, if things are in the range where you can, then it's a matter of working with singers to achieve what we call radio diction, which means when you're on the radio and you can't see anybody, the only thing you can rely on is, can you understand them? Right, yeah. I, I, I noticed some... This is more of a performance question. So some conductors work without any music. They come out on stage. You know, Mark Johnson from the Minnesota Boy Choir Mm -hmm. comes out and and everybody's got all the music memorized. What's your what's your take on, you know, because sometimes you conduct and you've got music, but the, the singers don't. What's your take on having music in the performance? Well, there's no right or wrong. I keep a score in front of me, uh, mainly because should some part get off in music I can refer to that very quickly for here's your next entrance you started too early on that one hold up and I've I've got the music in front of me Um, and you know in an in an ensemble uh, depending also how much rehearsal for a children's choir they often have you know a huge amount of rehearsal time so they're it's almost robotic what they are doing and so and for kids, it's great to not have the music so that you can keep your eye focus on all these kids. Mm-hmm. And I do the same, but I do keep a score there just uh, in case for some reason something goes awry and you need to be able to cue and bring them back in. Mm-hmm. So here, here's a question from, uh, from our friend Don Shelby. And uh, so Don's question is, how do you train yourself to hear a single voice inside of a full choir? How do you how do you detect the sharp alto on a second note in the midst of 130 voices striking different notes? Huh. That's an interesting question. Um, you, you are looking for a blend of all the voices together that you're trying to achieve. And when you're putting a choir together, um, you have different kinds of colors of sounds that voices give you. Mm-hmm. But what you don't need is one voice that is so raw 
that it's going to totally stick out in front of everybody. Or strong. Or strong. Yeah. You know, and you want strong voices. You want some voices that are what we call blending voices. Mm -hmm. These are voices that aren't going to do solos, but they have a, a wonderful kind of butter quality. They just, you need them there to make the sauce work. Mm -hmm. um, your mother is a blending voice mm. in a choir. She definitely has that kind of quality. And there are other voices that are too, um, they're, they're, they're just a little bit more crisp and you have to kind of tone some of them down a little bit. Um, you have some voices that maybe have a wider vibrato. Mm. So you have to kind of make that vibrato uh, a little less, uh, less wide and a little more uh, focused. Mm -hmm. And so listening to a big choir and you hear a sound uh, that doesn't quite fit into what you're listening to in terms of the choir, then you know, ah, I see where that's coming from. And I will often speak to somebody individually. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to embarrass a volunteer in front of everybody, but I'll just say, hey, you know, you need to maybe work on this vowel. I, when you sing the E vowel, you tend to be, you know, a, a little more strident and that doesn't really quite fit in and I think you learn this because you know it's like innately uh, as a conductor you you have an innate sense of rhythm mm -hmm. you have an innate sense of what you're listening for uh, I'm blessed to have perfect pitch so that having that mm -hmm. I can just hear what it is I want to have happen right and can go kind of crazy when it goes off and I'll bet you know, yeah but to Don's question you got 130 people what I'm hearing you say is that in the midst of a rehearsal, one of the 130 is, is, is off to some degree in, in, the, in the mix of mm -hmm. things. Do you just have like a, an audio physical, like almost like a whale you can like echolocate? Like, oh, it's, it's that person on the third yes. riser. Yes. And you just, and you know it's not the person next to them. Right. Yep. Because, you know, you've gotten to know their voices right. also, you know, in the course of it. And so I would, you know, in that case, I would have to say, you know, hey, Mary, be careful right there. You you know, you got a little bit off. Mm. Oh, okay. Right. You know, without doing it. You know, I will never be somebody that will yell at a singer. Because as soon as you start yelling at people, their throats close up. Mm. They suddenly lose that. You're always talking about you want the throat to be relaxed. Mm -hmm. That's the to make beautiful singing. And as soon as the throat is not relaxed, as soon as it becomes tense, then what was beautiful becomes, uh, and you know, you don't want that to happen. So another, so another role, if you will, or or kind of part of the job requirement for a choir director is to kind of help maintain a, a level of calmness. Then. Yes, a level, you, you want, you don't want them to be calm in the sense that they're not going to give you energy and or, vibrancy. Or passion, yeah. No, they, you want that. But in the sense that you say, I want you to have, I want your, your vocal mechanism mm -hmm. to be relaxed so that you can give full sound, soft sound, and most importantly, beautiful sound. Oh, 
Thanks so much for listening to Renaissance Man. If you've got a moment, we'd greatly appreciate a review on iTunes or share Renaissance Man with your friends. We've got dozens of new topics as well as more conversation on the subject of choral direction coming up soon. If you've got questions for Philip or for the podcast, send us an email to renaissancemanpodcast at gmail.com. That's renaissancemanpodcast at gmail.com. Again, thanks so much for listening. Thank you.